Bibles to the book of Hosea, the first of the minor prophets in our English translation. You'll find it right after the book of Daniel, and if you are using one of the chairback Bibles, you'll find tonight's text begin on page 752. And what we're going to do tonight is take chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 3, for uh, reasons I trust will prove clear enough soon enough as we get into our passage tonight. But to get us started, uh, let me read the first six verses only of chapter 4, because it's there that we find the the essential uh, problem in 8th century Israel as the Lord speaks through his prophet Hosea once again. And so after reading it, I'll pray for God's blessing, and then we'll continue on. So here now, once again, as God speaks to you through his perfect word. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend. Let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do come once again this evening knowing that you have spoken to us in these last days by your Son, our Savior and Redeemer, our Deliverer in whom we trust. And we ask even this night that by your Spirit that you have shed abroad into our hearts that he would open up our eyes that we might see the truth as it's found in Christ Jesus, that we, like the summons of the text to come, might return to you, that we would press on to know you in all things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in 1973 that an English Anglican, a theologian that many of you know as J.I. Packer, Uh, pulled together a collection of essays that he had written in previous years for a now defunct magazine that was called Evangelical Magazine. And he gathered all of those essays together into a manuscript that he shipped off to a publisher. And he said later on that as he shipped out that manuscript to the publisher, he had little hope for success because there was little interest in his subject. Well, soon enough, what came off the presses was a classic called Knowing God, that sold over a million copies in its first 20 years, astonishing, namely, the author himself, as his name is very much still affixed to the title of that book. But the reason I mention it is because in the original preface to the book, he says, the burden of this book is that ignorance of God, both of his ways and of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Why is the church weak in 1973, Packer asked? Nobody knows God. 
if you advance the story, 50 years on, here in America at least, would you say that the situation is any better? I'm sure many of us would agree, wouldn't we, that it's rather deteriorated in the half century on. Now you could take what he put as the, the burden of his book as nothing more than something he would have ripped out of the headlines from Hosea's time because what we're going to look at in this first cycle of judgment and promise that belongs to the prophet's ministry is the prophet coming to his people. And the Lord is saying, you don't know me. And I want you to know what's now going to happen as a result of your ignorance of my way, your ignorance of communion with me. So if you've been with us in our first few studies of Hosea, what you might remember in the first three chapters is that there was this kind of rapid shift in experiential scenes. So we might say in chapter one, we found ourselves in the maternity ward as God was directing Hosea what to name his children. You might remember, no kingdom, no mercy, no people. Then it shifts quite quickly in the second chapter to this experiential scene of, of romance and, and a groom wooing his bride as they were out in the wilderness and there was these lovers trysts along the way. And then almost as soon as that came, it shifted in chapter 3 to this scene of the slave market. As we saw how Hosea what was meant to embody something in his own experience, Yahweh's love for Israel as Hosea went into a slave market and bought back his wife Gomer from promiscuity and prostitution. And that marriage relationship that we've seen in recent weeks is, is nothing more than an enacted parable. It's this prophetic picture of God's marriage to adulterous Israel. Uh, that picture that's been put before our faces for the first few chapters, it's almost like now in the prophet's preaching ministry, it just now resides on the mantle behind him. That, that it's not in the foreground anymore, but you can't really see anything or hear anything that he's preaching without still seeing that relationship as defining much of what comes. And what comes now in verse or chapters 4 through 14, so the rest of the book, is quite different than what we've seen in the first three chapters. It's really nothing more than a series of cycles. We might say it this way. There's just cycle A, B, and C. Where it begins with God's word of judgment, his threats of warning against his people. And that occupies almost the entirety of the cycle. And then somewhere near the end, there's going to be a promise of coming restoration. And maybe a simple way that you can think about it, although it doesn't line up precisely as such, but it's quite close, is if you look again at verse 1 at the end of chapter 4, you notice, children, that the Lord says he has three principal problems with Israel. What does he say? Simply that there's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And so taking this verse is basically the direction of what comes in the following cycles. One commentator says, quote, each of these three charges are then taken up in reverse order. Each section closes with a bright picture of a better future day when God's love broke through the barriers of Israel's persistent sin. So he takes up the charges in reverse order. And so what we're going to look at tonight is their want of knowledge as we consider this theme of knowing God. And it's quite clear that this is the dominant theme in this first cycle. Because again, if you look down, verse 6 of chapter 4, the Lord simply says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You skip over to chapter 5, verse 4 at the end. For the spirit of whoredom is within them. 
and they know not their God. And then chapter 6, which gives us that word of promise, of coming restoration, simply says, if you notice chapter 6, verse 3, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. So it's a text, students, that simply is going to tell us two simple things about knowing God. Chapters 4 and 5, the danger of not knowing God. And then the first three verses of chapter 6, the delight of knowing God. The danger of not knowing God and the delight of knowing God. So the danger of not knowing God is the majority of our text before us. And you'll notice again how it begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. As the Lord's word is declared to his people. And it says, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. You could have a different translation in front of you. And what my ESV renders as controversy might be rendered as charge before you. The Lord has a charge against his people. And so now as we move from the maternity ward to the wilderness and the romance to the slave market by chapter 4 and really for the rest of the book, we find ourselves in a courtroom as God summons his prophet to be something like a covenant prosecutor, which is what so often happens in the Old Testament prophets. God sends his messengers and what they end up doing is, is little more than suing God's people for their breach of the covenant that they made with God. And God's principal charges are, there is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love. And what we're thinking about tonight is there is no knowledge. And in chapter 4, the spiritual situation we can summarize in two simple ways. The problems of the land in two simple ways. Number one, Israel had sinful leaders. They had sinful leaders. You'll notice verse 4 and 5 speak about prophets and priests. Verse 6, declaring quite clearly, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you, that being the priesthood really, you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. These men that the Lord had commissioned, set apart to be teachers of Israel, aren't teaching Israel. These men that were set apart to lead Israel, they're not leading Israel. These men that were set apart to remember the things of the Lord. They're not remembering the things of the Lord. So strikingly, God says, I'm not going to remember you. You see that at the end of verse 6. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now think about how stunning that would have been to hear in that 8th century Israelite context. What was the central reality of God's covenant grace? I will be a God to you and to your children. And what has he just said? I will not be a God to you. And I will not be a God to your children. Why? Because you have not known me. And pointedly here for the priests, you have not told others that they too must know me. I think it's quite clear that if you read your Bible well, you would agree with the statement that there are a few things so noxious, poisonous, heinous in the Lord's nostrils as faithless leaders. Because what is leadership? No matter the sphere, but certainly when it comes to spiritual leadership, it's a stewardship. It's something that God has entrusted to you and what's required of stewards? That they be faithful. And here are stewards, here are leaders Proving to be utterly faithless. God says, I'm going to forget you. I'm going to forget your children too. So Israel has sinful leaders. 
The second truth is Israel has sinful lives. Sometime earlier this year, I was reading this old pastoral letter from a pastor to his congregation and in ways that it's just not common for people to speak like this anymore in our context. He, he was putting his finger on a precise spiritual issue in his congregation that was a problem. And he said, here's the root of the problem. The root of the problem lies with your leaders, that we have not been faithful in these matters. And he went on for a few paragraphs speaking about the ways in which they had fallen short the ways in which they had not met the mark. But he didn't let the congregation off the hook because in a way that he just continued into the next paragraph, he said, and you're at fault too. You haven't done any of this either. And that's what God is basically saying is going on in Israel. Look at verse nine. And it shall be like people, like priest. An idiom that sounds like what we would often say in our context, like father, like son. The priests are sinful, therefore it shouldn't be surprising that the people are sinful too. And you see the catalog of sins go back to verse 2. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. And what Hosea often emphasizes as these central sins in Israel's life of sensuality and idolatry, you see that play out the end of verse 12 into 13. As he says, a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills. The end of verse 13. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your bride commits adultery. Verse 14 talks about that in the context of these kind of ancient pagan cult prostitution realities. There is genuine physical adultery marking the land. There is genuine spiritual adultery adultery marking the land. They are proving that they don't know God. Our neighbors to the north side of our house, I don't know the breed of dog, but it's a very large dog that they have. And early on, his name is Buddy. He would come over the fence and he would just occupy our backyard for a period of time. And then it seemed like early on after they had gotten him daily, multiple times a day, we would be taking the dog back to our neighbors uh, with a leash. And there was one time I remember being out, I think I was maybe running in the, by in the front yard or something. And I saw one of our children, one of our younger children, pulling Buddy with a leash. And Buddy didn't want to go back to where he belonged. And you can probably picture this dog that's like twice the size of my child. And the child is like pulling the dog and the dog's pulling back and just kind of watching this play out for a few seconds because that dog's not going where he needs to go. Now imagine that same child with a leash trying to pull a cow that weighs something like a ton in a direction it doesn't want to go. That's not going to happen, is it? It's stubborn. Just in the way God says Israel is. Do you see that in verse 16? Like a stubborn cow. Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? They become so hardened in their sin. This rhetorical question is clear enough. I would take them into the pastures of truth, God says, but they don't want to come. They have no interest in feeding upon my truth. Therefore, it's not surprising, is it? That they know nothing about me, their creator and redeemer. And so the Lord speaks in verse 17, some of the most frightening words that anyone could ever hear. It says simply, Ephraim is joined to idols. Ephraim often used in the Old Testament as a substitute for the northern kingdom as a whole, but the terrifying reality is 
the end of verse 17, leave him alone. I mean, as a, as a parent, perhaps sometimes when your children are fighting or one is pestering or one is inducing, you say, leave him alone. This is something different that we call theologically judicial abandonment. Leave him alone. If God leaves you alone, do you understand how terrifying that is? Because has he not told us, even the Savior himself, that you can do nothing apart from me? Leave her alone. Do you think any good would come to you? Leave him alone. Do you think any grace would flow into your life? Leave them alone. Do you think there would be any truth among such a people? There's a danger in not knowing God. And so if chapter 4 represents the charge against Israel there in that divine courtroom, chapter 5, we could simply say, is just the verdict of the judge. The verdict of the judge. I suppose that we could think after the service tonight of a number of different three-word phrases that can easily define and shape your life. Sometimes such three-word phrases are, are beneficial and quite good. I love you. Kiss your bride. Others are somewhat terrifying. I am leaving. You have cancer. He is dead. One of the most profoundly and potentially shaping three-word phrases that you can know in Scripture is, the Lord knows. In times of suffering, doesn't it comfort your heart to remind your soul, the Lord knows. In times of temptation and, and difficulty, you find strength in, the Lord knows. Perhaps unusual conviction comes in the midst of secret sin, you realize, the Lord knows. That's exactly what we're told. Notice verse 3 and 4. God says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore, and Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. The spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. There's danger in not knowing God. What kind of danger? Well, we can race through really the end of chapter 5 and notice uh, the punishment that's soon going to pounce on Israel. Skip ahead to verse 14. Yahweh says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue it's this incredible judgment that's going to fall upon God's people. And if you just kind of scan your eyes through really verses 10 through 14, you'll notice how what the prophet is doing is he's piling up metaphor upon metaphor about the punishment that's soon going to pounce, the judgment that's going to come. If you look at verse 10, God says that his wrath is going to come like a flood of water. Skip to verse 12. He says his judgment is going to be like a corrosive rot or devouring moth. Verse 13, he says his retribution is going to be like a festering wound. And again, verse 14, his fury is going to be like a vicious lion. Do you have a place in your knowledge of God that knows this is what happens when people don't know him? That like a lion 
takes his prey and no one can rescue it from their mouth. So God says is my punishment that fall upon people who do not know me. I wonder if you know him sincerely and, and genuinely. And one of the great parts of these cycles that come in Hosea is that you often find, even though they're sometimes brief, that you find these wonderful rays of, of gospel light breaking into the darkness. Because notice verse 15, the very end of chapter 5. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So you see, he's pointing forward to a time, the possibility of restoration, the possibility of reconciliation. But notice what he's saying is, I'm leaving them. And if you skip back, he's already even announced that in verse 6 of chapter 5. He says, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Uh, the language here in verse 6 is actually about sacrifice and offering. So it's picturing the nation of Israel going about their religious duties. Going into God's house. And not realizing that he's not there. I'm sometimes frightened. I mean, I mean that sincerely. Genuinely frightened by how many churches would gather on a Sunday morning in our country. Offering religious devotion to the Lord. And they have no idea that he's not even there. Because they have not known his truth for so long. But he says, I'll return to my place. If you return to me, there's going to be restoration. So that's why as we look at that good news of the first three verses of chapter 6, we move from the danger of not knowing God to the delight. The delight in knowing God. As you'll notice, verse 1 of chapter 6 begins, Come, let us return to the Lord. I think it was something like February 8th, earlier this year, that journalists from around the country and all the major news outlets began to descend upon this tiny college in a totally unexpected place in Kentucky because there had been this chapel service at Asbury University and it had extended afterwards with some students hanging around. And for a number of weeks following, the service just continued. I've seen reports that have said something like 50,000 different students came to Asbury University representing something like 260 different colleges in what became known as the Asbury Revival. And as these things so often happen in church history, people began to ask questions that are quite essential, aren't they? Well, what even is a revival? Is there such a thing as revival? And if there is, how do you know what revival looks like? Well, one of the principal places that people that believe that God's word talks about revival as a real reality, and I would be one such person that you would turn to in the Bible to show what revival is like, is right here in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. And this delight of knowing God. And so as we close, I want to show you three simple things. Not that just belong to that delight, but are marks of a genuine revival among God's people. The first of which is a heart for repentance. Verse 1 continues, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he might heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. 
You notice the same verb that's used there in verse one of chapter six, the Lord used of himself at the very last verse of chapter five, saying, I will return to my place. Come, let us return to the Lord, the prophet declares. And students, you might know your Bible well enough to know that the word for repentance, it's just a word that speaks about turning. You turn away from sin and you turn towards obedience. So it's why so often the Old Testament prophets, when they call God's people to repent, they use language that's like this. Return to the Lord. And the reason and the rationale for that repentance is simply, he has done it. The same one that has torn us apart has the power to mend us once again. The same one that has crushed us has the power to heal us once again. He who was a lion in his judgment is a divine doctor in his healing towards his people. And I hope you know how true that is when you come to the Lord with a heart of repentance, sincere, genuine repentance, the Lord never pushes aside. But does he not use it to bind up the heart and heal the soul? There's a heart for repentance. Secondly, there's a hope for life. Look at verse two. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we might live before him. A revival in the nature of the word itself is nothing more than just new life. Revival is resurrection, a life, and in a way that should strike us, you see that it's on the third day that he will raise us up. I mean, by this point in the life of God's Old Testament people, they had so many instances in the Old Testament histories of, of things happening on the third day that were rather significant. Exodus 19, God descends upon Mount Sinai to meet with his people at long last on the third day. Maybe you know the story of Esther quite well. It's, it's the deliverance that's finally decided on the third day there. It's also in the third day that Hezekiah finds healing. It's also in the third day that the prophet Jonas spit out from the belly of the fish and I trust you cannot come to a text that says on the third day he will raise us up as nothing more than pointing forward to that third day when the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because is not his resurrection the guarantee of his people's resurrection? Is not the Lord's new life, his revival, the down payment of certainty of our revival at the end of all time? So there's hope for life. There's a heart for repentance, finally, verse 3, there's a hunger for truth. The problem is they don't know God. So surely then it shouldn't be surprising that one of the central parts of their response is that they know God. As verse 3 says, notice, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Jesus in his high priestly prayer of John 17 says, this is eternal life that they know you. Do you know him? Uh, you may even be able to see how some of these connections work out in the apostle's mind. You begin to understand when the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 uh, speaks about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And only a few sentences later, let us press on for the upward call of knowing Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Let us live as the prophet Hosea has called God's people to live. The delight of knowing God found in a heart of repentance. 
a hope for life, a hunger for truth, knowledge that, of course, is offered to you today, and that Savior that rose again on the third day, that Savior that mends what is broken, that Savior that heals what is torn, that Savior that saves people from the danger and brings them into the delight of knowing the eternal bliss of life in him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do take this text as our simple prayer tonight. That by your Spirit, you would let us know you. That by the same Spirit, we would press on to know you. Trusting that you will come to us. Your presence will be with us in Jesus Christ as surely as the morning brings the dawn. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.